going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. Happy Monday, one and all. Hope all is well with you and yours. And hope you were able to survive Snowpocalypse April 2019. Holy moly. You know, and we should come to expect it, right? Every April, every May long weekend, expect the same kind of thing. Sometime early June, probably get another blast of snow because why not? And yeah, we always seem to do the same thing over and over and over again, don't we? Everybody seems to go out. Hey, I'm I'm better than old man winter. I've been practiced up. We're good to go. And then you hear of the 30 car pile up and... uh, Anyways, fun times had by all. Those roads were something else, though. I'd, uh, I ended up having to go out to Canmore Sunday morning, and I thought, they'll be fine. Everything will be melted. Stony was certainly not melted. That was like riding on the worst case of washboard on a gravel road I have ever been on. It was much better by the time we got home. It was just, it took, took a couple of hours to get from the north end of Stony all the way over to uh to uh to Canmore. Uh it took a couple of hours. Wasn't wasn't the best. And the worst part is I took the puppy for the drive cuz I thought, well, she'll get some mountain air. It'll be great. About 20 minutes into the drive, she looks over at me and goes, "Dad, I don't want to do this anymore. This isn't fun." If only puppies could talk. If only animals could talk. I'm sure they'd have some wild and crazy things to say. On today's show, as we change gears a little bit, I won't rail too much on Mother Nature and the effects that we have uh, that she has on us. We're going to talk detention. Is it good for kids to go through detention in school or is it uh, not necessarily the needed thing? We're going to chat with uh, Jane Sanders, social worker and, and someone who's quoted in a global news report uh, from, a, I think it was earlier today or yesterday, talking about some of the pros and cons to detention. So we'll get to the bottom of that in just a couple of minutes. After 4 o'clock, a great announcement out of the University of Calgary on Friday that I wanted to revisit because it's Friday night. Um, The University of Calgary's Building Design Lab opened up. The dean of that program... John Brown is going to join us after four o'clock to talk about uh, about all that they are hoping to accomplish with that. We'll also check in uh, kind of a controversial topic that I've decided to post on social media, and, and it's gotten quite a wide range of comments. Do you like it when politicians make stops in emergency zones, not necessarily for a photo op, some do, others don't, but Is it good for those who are trying to do rescue missions and that because it gives you that little show of support? It's kind of like sometimes having the the GM come into the dressing room and say, hey, you're doing a great job, boys, but you got to, you know, and and come up with that motivational speech. Or is it bad? I'm going to give you two different examples, but the Justin Trudeau thing from over the weekend has certainly hit a fever pitch, and I want to dive back into uh, that topic. We'll also talk a little bit about bike riding. And especially for kids, now that the snow is going to end, I'm going to cross my fingers. I'm going to be an optimist here. Maybe we could get our kids biking more to school. Lindsay Bleak's going to join us from Ever Active Alberta to talk about a new report that uh, I was reading over the weekend that I thought, this is a pretty topical thing, especially as Mother Nature comes by. Uh, On Friday, we had Cody Battersill on talking about uh, the 
campaign and the tour that the Victoria mayor was going on. Well, Councillor Jeff Davison here in Calgary was also a part of that tour of Northern Alberta. He's going to join us after five o'clock as well to talk about that. We'll also introduce you to one of the new Calgary MLAs. Tyler Shandro is going to join us after 530. Uh, it's one of the one of my efforts that I want to do over the course of the next few days is introduce you to some of the new faces and some of the new names that you're seeing uh, in the legislature in Edmonton. Of course, swearing in happens tomorrow. First session in a few weeks. Who's going to be part of the cabinet is one question. But who are some of these people? The new or incoming, I guess, Calgary Acadia MLA Tyler Shandro will join us after 530. And I have a contest, a CPO contest to get to. We're going to do that uh, later on. Not right now. We're going to start things off talking detention next here on Calgary Today. Uh, Jane Sanders, social worker, PhD candidate uh, in uh, the University of Toronto. And she's been quoted in a global news story, which I'm going to post up on uh, Twitter in just a second, talking about the effects of detention and whether detention is a good thing or a bad thing. And so, Jane, thank you so much for uh, joining us and shedding some light today. Absolutely. So I'm going to ask this right off the bat. Is detention a good thing or a bad thing in your mind? So I think that any method of uh, school discipline, you know, it really has to be an intervention that considers the long-term impacts and benefits so the emotional and long-term health of any student. So it's it's not good if it the focus is around social segregation and uh, you know your behavior is unacceptable and left at that. It could potentially be used as an opportunity to engage with a student and sit with them and say, hey, like what's happening for you? What's going on for you? How can we understand what's happening and support you better? So I think that it's, uh, it in itself is not, the way it's used most often is not good, um, but there might be some opportunities to build some relationships with students that, you know, if detention is the only thing that a teacher has left as a recourse, that should be the focus. Where does the idea of discipline play into all of this? Is it for first time offenders? I understand the notion of, okay, let's get to the bottom of it, but if it becomes a recurring theme, then what? Especially for teachers who are feeling kind of defenseless or or, uh, administrators who are sitting there going, I don't know how to deal with this kid anymore. Yeah, yeah. And so this is exactly. anything, no matter what you're doing, it should be considered like an intervention rather than a discipline. Um, We call them disciplines, but really it's a way of trying to intervene with students with behaviors that are not going well for them, perhaps not going well for their peers, perhaps not going well in the classrooms. And teachers do need to be able to have ways to manage behaviors, but the focus, again, needs to be on understanding what's behind the behavior as opposed to just... um, discipline for the sake of discipline. It needs to be part of a positive and proactive strategy or plan that really understands the problems that that are happening for a student. Perhaps there's learning concerns, perhaps there's social worries, perhaps there's family or community stress, perhaps the student has had some exposure to trauma or adversity and they're having a difficult time managing it. And teachers won't always be aware of many of these things, um, but it but they need to be have every opportunity to start to build relationships with students, to start to understand students, and build connections for students with school staff, with peers, and with the school in general. 
How difficult is it to go down that line? Because especially I'll use the the issues at home as an example is, you know, that there are going to be those parents who are going to say, hey, it's none of your business what uh, I'm doing at home. You just deal with teaching my kid. Mm-hmm. And so this is where I would also say that while you're focusing on building relationships with students, you need to be equally focused on building relationships with parents. Because if a parent's sending that kind of message, it often means that they don't necessarily trust or understand what a school is doing on behalf of their student. And many parents, if you've had struggles with your with um, with students over a period of time, they've been hearing only negative pieces of what's going on for their students. So teachers need to try to incorporate as often as possible those positives as well. Johnny did great today, but I can't help but notice that he's having a hard time sitting still. Do you have any suggestions for me on how to support him? How do you understand what's going on for Johnny? Like, what can we do together? That kind of piece. So build those relationships and connections for parents as well as students. Is there a fine line to be towed when it comes to being overly positive versus being overly negative in terms of that feedback between parents and teachers? Uh there's a fine line. We, I think that we so often cross the line into being too negative that there's, there's very little risk of being too positive when you're, when you're trying to support a student that may be struggling. It's, it's often frustrating for everyone involved. So you do have to be sending very clear messages around what behavior is and is not acceptable, but that, again, should be in the context of it seems like you're having a hard time with this. Let's sit down and figure out what's going on for you. You know, often it's it, behavior is a way of communicating a problem for kids. They, they don't necessarily know what's going on. They certainly don't know how to articulate it, and they certainly don't know what they need. And we as adults have to create as many opportunities to help them figure that out with us as possible. And the reality is that for some students, um, more than we would like to admit, there are pretty significant things happening that we may never understand until much, much later in their lives. And so we all have to assume that a kid is doing the best that they can with what they have going on, and we have to support them and correct them. So it's still not a matter of, oh, you get to do whatever you are doing right now, but it's um, it's an opportunity to say, I can tell you're struggling, but we still have to treat our friends this way or that way. And so come on over here and sit with me for a little bit while you uh, settle down. And again, that's the focus, the underlying focus is around relationships. How important is it for parents to take an even keel approach on things and not look at any kind of discipline or any kind of uh, concern that's brought up by a teacher as not being an indictment on your ability to be a parent, but more about making sure that you're looking out for the best interests of the kid uh, as they're going through whatever struggles they might be going through? Sure, and I think that both parents and schools have a responsibility to try and make sure that those messages are clear. Parents, for the most part, want what's best for their kids. Schools, for the most part, want what's best for their students. And so if everybody's are able to start a conversation from that standpoint, it goes much smoother. But yeah, parents often have been given messages that whatever's happening for a kid is what's going on at home, why, why is Johnny acting this way, why aren't you dealing with this? And so we all have to come together and say, hey, 
something's going on. What can we do together to figure this out? And usually it may take some time, depending on how often parents have had different messages and have not had that kind of approach happen for them. It may take some time for them to build trust and faith that this is what's going on. But lots of time parents are just as confused by the behavior as the the school is. And so they will ultimately welcome an opportunity to figure it out together. It does take some skill, though, sometimes Mm -hmm. on both sides. What kinds of advice would you give to parents when they are approaching these conversations? And and on the flip side, for teachers, when they're dealing with some of these uh, kids who are going through some of these challenges in terms of trying to get to the heart of the matter as quickly as possible, but doing it in in a sensitive enough way that you're not trying to rush them into anything. Uh, yeah, so it, it does take some time sometimes, and it can take number of voices. So if if one parent is, is, if a child isn't comfortable talking to their parent, the parent can come into the school and say, you know what, something's going on with Johnny, and do you guys have any ideas? Have you been seeing anything? What do you, what do you understand about what's been happening? Those kinds of things. Lots of times parents do have to advocate for, on behalf of their students because schools are so stretched right now. The resources are, are so thin that kids can get missed when um, things are happening, especially kids that are quieter. So these are less often the kids that are ending up uh, affected by discipline strategies like detention. And, but, but ultimately down the road, if they're not supported, that could be what happens is their, the behavior becomes an issue later. So parents do have a a role to play in in terms of advocating for their kids and making sure that they have those open communications with school as well. Everybody's, as I say, everybody's got a role to play. And I have one more question for you there, Jane, and it has to do with something that you made mention of just as we were going to break, and that was uh, the resources available. And and especially given when uh, these teachers are having to deal with a wide variety of learning abilities in the classroom, I'm curious how detrimental it can be to take the kids out of class for detention or any kind of discipline because you're putting them further back. And as long as you keep getting them further back in their studies, the harder it's going to be for the rest of the class to motor on and continue learning at their pace because they're being held back by the one or two bad eggs. Yeah, this is a huge challenge for teachers. Um, because no, in no classroom will everybody be on the same page learning the same stuff. And so oftentimes teachers are stretched trying to support the students that are ahead of the pack and keep them engaged while still, and then the kids at the, that are sort of at the tail end, I guess, of, of where things are at and making sure they're supported and keeping up with any struggles they may have. Lots of times it's kids in the middle of that spectrum, if you will, that are, you know, they have a couple of questions, but the teacher has no time to get to them. And this is where disengagement can sometimes become a problem if this, you know, continues to happen. And then those kids that are otherwise should be doing okay, but, but more and more often they're not getting their needs met. They don't feel that the teacher has the time for them. They don't feel that they have um, the attention that they need. Then that can become a problem and, and they become more and more disengaged with what's happening in the classroom. Teachers have a huge, huge, huge job a huge job to try and navigate all of the different learning needs within a classroom. Mm -hmm. One of the key takeaways I've taken away from our conversation here, uh, Jane, is that it's all about a conversation. It's all about having that open discussion and making sure that everybody's on the same page. 
Yeah, relationships and connections. Yeah. It's a great time to start that conversation with your kid as you're going to uh, going back home for the day. Uh, Jane, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Absolutely. My pleasure. Jane Sanders at the University of Toronto joining us to talk a little bit about detention and whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, just going over to the text line, 403-974-8255, if you want to weigh in on it. Uh, one point was made, and, and I let me be and let me apologize, I suppose, especially I, I'm not trying to label kids with ADHD as being bad eggs. I, I, that's not, that wasn't my intention. And so I apologize on that side of it. What I was more alluding to is, hey, are you giving detention to kids who are uh, beating the ever living, you know, what's out of kids for no particular reason or because they're bullies, for example? Um, it, th- those who have ADHD, who can't sit still, that kind of thing. That's a whole other topic that I think we could talk about uh, for a long time about. So I just wanted to be clear on that. I did get one text about that. And so again, I do apologize if there was any, uh, if that was what you thought I was trying to say, definitely not the case. And I apologize. Uh, Do you think coddling kids will help them down the road? I'm not so sure. I agree with that as well. There's no point in coddling the kid. I don't, I think there's a, a fine line to be reached between talking to a kid and trying to get to the root of the problem so that they they become better workers down the line or better students down the line, it's another to, oh, not my Johnny, right? And parents and teachers can be both guilty of that, 100%. And so I always take it case-by-case basis, um, coddling the kid and being, oh, my little Johnny wouldn't do that. Come on now. Uh, one other texter, kids are a lot smarter than than she thinks, but I grew up, when, when I was growing up, we all knew the teachers that were positive, aka pushovers, that would rather be friends with their students than the authority figure. Those classes were easy A's. Yeah, and so there, again, it boils down to having that good mix, like being able to be the authoritarian, but also be, or the authoritarian, authority figure, but on the flip side, being able to be somebody that they can confide in, because in some cases... These are kids who are just having issues at home. They're getting yelled at. And so you get to that circle of yelling, right? So just a a few thoughts to, again, conjure up that discussion. And as I mentioned right off the the end of that uh, chat with Jane there is have that conversation with your kid. If your kid's having troubles at school, just a small conversation can go a long, long way. It's Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. Seems like a perfect opportunity for the University of Calgary's City Building Design Lab, officially opening on Friday in the old Central Library. Thanks in a partnership with the East Village Master Developer and Calgary Municipal Land Corporation, the U of C's uh, dean of that program is John Brown. He joins us now to give us a little bit of insight into what is planned for the future. John, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you. What does it mean to you to be able to have the doors open and everything uh, really coming to fruition officially on Friday? Well, it's a, it's a huge step for our school. You know, um, uh, a design school needs to be downtown in the same way that a school of medicine needs to be in a hospital. Uh, you know, as, as architects, planners, and landscape architects are city builders, and the best place to learn about city building and research about city building is in the heart of the city. What is the hope when all is said and done and you've got a, you're at full capacity and, and everything is, is rolling according to plan? Well, there's kind of three three levels. Uh, one, we have our exhibition gallery, which is going to be open to the public uh, five days a week over the summer, and then starting in the fall, seven days a week. Uh, to the, and it will have uh, exhibitions of student work 
faculty research, but also work that's been done by local professionals and international experts um, to really raise awareness and level of understanding amongst the public about, uh, about what goes into making a great city. We've also got an event space that holds 350 people and we'll be having 100 events a year in the space. Most of them will be publicly oriented that, again, will go in towards starting this discussion about about city building and and what does it take to make a great Calgary uh, in the next 20 years. And then, of course, we've got a teaching space for 60 students and we'll be doing a lot of research with our collaborative stakeholders in industry. As you mentioned, one of the things that comes to mind is building that city of the future for Calgary. And I think sometimes we end up almost forgetting because it's got this small town feel to it. But at a city of 1.4 million people and a, and a, a downtown skyline that continues to grow, I mean, there's got to be that foresight and that looking ahead to planning in the next 20, 40, 50, 100 years down the road. Yeah, that's right. And, it, and, and I think one of the big things that that, that, that we're interested in, in uh, bringing to people's attention is that cities aren't something that happen by accident and they're not something that, that happen by others. Every day, every decision that we make about the way that we go to work, where we work, where we live, how we consume um, the, the things that we use, all go into making the city. And, and so, you know, as, as thoughtful citizens interested in creating a, a future that's sustainable and resilient and equitable and healthy and vibrant, we, we, should, we should be thinking about some of those decisions that we're making and making sure that they're consistent with the kind of city that we want to live in and that we want our children to have. Talk a little bit about what you hope students take away from it in terms of uh, just the, the idea of, of planning a unique, I'll call Calgary a unique city that way, is that there is sort of that expectation that, hey, I've got my little piece of land. I don't want to be building up all the time. We want to spread out a little bit. And some of the challenges that come along with that. Sure. Well, I mean, I think one of the things that, um, that, that we, I think we can contribute is to add a little bit more nuance to the conversation, that there is a vast uh, range of, of scales and options between the single-family house and the high-rise. And, and I think all too often that debate becomes polarized into those two options. But, you know, there are ways of, of subtly increasing density without changing the way in which a neighborhood works or looks. There are ways of, of modifying heights in those areas where density is appropriate so that it has, there's an appropriate street scale. You know, and, and, it's, and again, it's, it's also, I think, important not to just focus on what the, the physical nature of the, of the housing is, but what do those various types of, of options bring to us in terms of green space, in terms of access to amenities, walkability, um, you know, all of those kinds of things. We've seen, a, we've seen a, 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 a real resurgence of the established communities in the last, what, 15, 15 years. Mm-hmm. They've become very, very popular places to live. One of the reasons for that is that, that they have that nice mix between having slightly, they're slightly denser than maybe the, the, a new community, but not, not that much. And, uh, and yet they're close to, the, to, the, to, to work and to the sort of cultural amenities of the city. And so we want to, one of the things I think we need to have is a conversation as a city, as, a, as public, and, and with, our, with our city administrators, policymakers, and politicians is, you know, what kind of city could we have and what kind of city do we want to plan for in order to make sure that it is affordable, that it's equitable, and that it's sustainable. 
You mentioned that conversation, and I mean, being right downtown, you're going to have that opportunity to have conversations with all kinds of stakeholders. And and I think the other part of it is, is those stakeholders are going to have a bunch of sets of brand new eyes that might bring something new to the table or might bring something to the table that maybe wasn't thought of before. Absolutely. I mean, it's it, this this is not a one-way street. You know, we're, it's not about coming and having people come to us and then us talking at them. We're very interested in a, a participatory approach to the uh, to, to city building, and how can we co-create in, in, in this? And you know, at, at some level, each of us are experts in in building cities, the city that we want, the city that we dream of, and uh, and and it would be unfair to think that 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 only experts have all of the answers. Experts have some uh, special knowledge that can help facilitate the process. But really, the, the, the building of a city is always a collective, uh, a collective uh, strategy. And when it comes to building for those future generations, I mean, there's nothing better than having uh, a set of that future generation, a future homeowner, a future taxpayer, that kind of thing, being right in the midst of helping build and grow that community. Absolutely. You know, the kind of uh, naive optimism um, that comes from youth, from, from people that are just embarking on their careers is, is really vitally important. Calgary is one of, one of the most important parts of what defines Calgary is that kind of innovation, entrepreneurial speed, you know, spirit, the sense that, you know, we can go out and do that and, uh, and, and not just, you know, rest on conventional strategies. And I think that, you know, it's time that we expand that beyond the traditional industries and start thinking about how we can apply that to the way we think about our city. We talk about a five-year lease agreement with CMLC. At the end of that five years, how will you be looking at the, your facility and, and at your faculty as being a success? What will define success for you? Well, what will define success is, first of all, that we're not leaving at the end of five years. <laughs> you know, our goal is to, to remain, remain downtown somewhere or uh, in, in some form uh, and actually to move the, you know, the entire, potentially move the entire school there. Um, you know, and, and I guess our success would be defined whether that, that becomes, whether that's deemed to be a, a, a good idea or not. Mm-hmm. You know, on a, on a slightly less, um, less ambitious scale, it'll be a success if we're, if, if we're seen, if the School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape is seen as being part of the conversation, that we're a vital part of, of this discussion about wh- what kind of future it is. And, you know, and we can sit at the table in a slightly different way than, say, the private development industry or the city of, of Calgary and, and indeed even other civil society groups. So I think we bring something unique to the table and our, our challenge over the next five years as all of us as researchers, as staff and as students is to deliver on that potential. Really looking forward to seeing what you guys are able to accomplish over those five years. Uh, congratulations on the opening, John, and all the best going forward. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Last week, we caught up with uh, the fine folks over at Canada Action. Talk about the tour they were doing with Victoria Mayor uh, Lisa Helps, as well as Calgary City Councillor Jeff Davison. And we talked to them beforehand, and I wanted a bit of a post-mortem on how things went up in the air and on the ground in Alberta's north. Joining us now, Calgary City Councillor Jeff Davison. Uh, uh, Councillor, thanks so much for the time today. Thanks very much for having me. Walk us through what you went, uh, what you did on Friday, and and sort of the response that you got out of the mayor of Victoria. 
Well, I think, you know, it's really important that we carry on a conversation about Canada's energy industry. As I continue to say, you know, this isn't just about Calgary. It's not just about Alberta. It's really about uh, Canada. And and this is really an issue that affects us all. And so I think any time where we have an opportunity to, uh, you know, take part in, in a discussion and actually showcase the world-class technology that we have here in Alberta with respect to energy, uh, we, we've got to take as much uh, time to do that as we can. That was one of the things I took away with my chat with Cody last week was the the fact that this wasn't just, hey, let's do an aerial visit of Fort McMurray and then fly back. This was all-encompassing, going into some of the, the facilities and really getting a hands-on uh, approach and idea of t- as to what's going on uh, in Alberta's north. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, people forget that, you know, 97% of the oil sands, you know, that land area that has deposits are, is really too deep to be mined. And so, you know, you have to use technology like SAG-D in order to extract it. And so I think when people talk about oil sands, you know, immediately they have a perception in their mind that just isn't really the face of what oil sands actually is in the province, you know. Do you think that you changed any hearts or minds of those who were in the in the, the tour? Or do you think that there was at least a, the, the conversation started, which is almost more more important than than changing anybody's mind at this point. Yeah, exactly. You know, I don't think we set out to uh, necessarily uh, have the goal of changing anybody's mind or perception, but I I think what we set out to do is say, look, we have to have a conversation and we have to ground our conversation in facts. Um, You know, I think often people form uh, their rhetoric about oil and gas or energy in this country based on opinion rather than fact. And so this was our chance to actually get out and, and show people, you know, this is why technology matters. And, and these, are, these aren't just about jobs. This is about the families that actually hold these jobs and the people that are very proud to work in this industry. And so it's really important to get out and talk to those folks and, and understand what is being done to, uh, you know, live up to the standard that, you know, we are the most ethical and environmentally friendly uh, oil and gas industry in the world. You know, we spend six times more than any other sector or than any other sector in the country on, on environmental protection. And so uh, that's something that the uh, oil and gas industry does not get recognized for enough. How challenging is it to convince other uh, council members from different communities, different cities, different provinces to do the same thing and to actually tour with you guys rather than sit on their own pedestals in their own provinces and not say uh, and not do their due diligence? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's incredibly important. I mean, you know, if you jump forward here to FCM this June with the uh, Federation of Canadian Municipalities, um, we're going to talk to other mayors and councillors from across the country, and, you know, we'll really be inviting those other mayors that are out there to come and see, you know, what Canada's energy industry is all about, because I think it's incredibly important that we, we can continue that conversation. Do you get the sense at all that there is a bit of a turning of the tide in the very least the, the, the ability or the desire to have that conversation reopen? Well, you know, I think the one thing that we have to all consider is that, you know, while we talk about environmental standards and, and goals, um, you know, I think it's important that we set these long-term goals together and say, you know, what does our impact want to be over the next 50 and 200 years? But the real conversation has to be about what tactics do we play to get there together. You know, it's not like we can just flip a switch and turn energy off and we'll go and use renewables for the rest of time and that's that. You know, it's it's really about uh, how do you phase out the long-term uh, usage of, of, of 
you know, non-renewable resources and phase in renewables. And I think that's not something we're going to solve overnight, and it's certainly not going to be something we solve if we continue to stand in our own corners and fight a good fight. It's really a conversation that we have to get together and talk about, set long-term goals, and then agree upon the steps that we can take to get there. You hit on something there, and that is that here in Alberta, we seem to be able to talk in our own, I, I don't want to say in our own echo chambers, but you're almost preaching to the choir whenever you try to sell the message. And so what are the biggest challenges in your eyes in selling that message to the rest of Canada? Yeah, I mean, I think that is the big challenge. I think, you know, here in Alberta, we continue to, uh, you know, we, t- we talk a lot about ourselves and it's, it's a little bit of almost negotiating with ourselves. You know, we have to get out there and be a lot more vocal about changing the perception of oil and gas across the country. And I think, you know, it's, it's a combination of a couple of things. You know, there's areas across the country that probably just don't have the knowledge base because it's just not familiar to them. And so it's those places we need to get to and and have a conversation. But in turn, it's also the places that have a misperception of what oil and gas is in this country uh, and and really getting to those people and playing out, you know, the facts and allowing them to have a conversation and, and not necessarily disagreeing with them, but, you know, disagreeing on how we're going to get to the long-term goal and setting up something together. Councillor, I do appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Councillor Jeff Davison joining us here on Calgary today as he recaps that trip with Cody and the mayor of Victoria uh, on Friday to go over. And and here's my challenge to all the mayors across this country, and and Councillor Davison alluded to it with FCM coming up, is take them up on the offer. Because what do you have to lose other than your own preconceived notions about what you think the oil sands entail? Take them up on the offer. Go up for a tour. Go see what's happening. If you don't, you're just talking in your own echo chamber. My two cents, anyways. Uh, One of the things that we wanted to do heading into tomorrow, but especially heading over the next week or so, is to put into, into a profile some of the new faces that we're seeing around the legislature representing our city here in Calgary. Tomorrow, you can let the speculation begin on who's going to be sitting in Jason Kenney's new cabinet. I mean, there are a ton of positions available. Even the, the question then becomes beyond that is... Who's what kinds of seats are going to be available because every government has different ideas on what the priorities are going to be. Are we going to see a bigger portfolio, for example, for the energy sector? You can take a wild stab in the dark and say yes. Are you going to see more of an emphasis on the economy? I'm going to say probably yes. So there's a few different faces that could be filling those gaps. Some of those faces are brand spanking new here in Calgary, and one of those happens to be in Calgary, Acadia. The MLA-elect is Tyler Shandro, and he joins us now on the program. Tyler, thanks so much for the time today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. How has the last week been in terms of just getting to know everything that is going on in Edmonton? Well, we definitely haven't learned everything yet, um, but it, it's been fantastic just meeting all the new staff in the legislature and uh, meeting some of our new colleagues uh, from the NDP as well, and it's been been fantastic. It's been a whirlwind and been great. How's the uh, transition process been? Have you been able to kind of wrap your head around everything that you're going to have to do over the next four years or so? No, not at all. No, no. It's <laughs> going to be, uh, you know, it definitely is a job where you're always learning every day. So, uh, but it, it was a first fantastic week, and and the staff there at the legislature are so professional, and um, they did a fantastic job onboarding all of us for the first few days. It's been great. For those who don't know who Tyler Shandro is, in a nutshell, give us a little bit of your background. 
Uh, yeah, I, I grew up here in Calgary. Um, uh, went to high school in, in the riding of Beaverbrook. Um, been a lawyer for the last 14 years. Uh, dad, two boys. Um, and, uh, um, yeah, served my community in other ways as well. Former member of the parole board. I uh, was on the municipal government board. Um, been uh, on the board, the boards of uh, several nonprofits as well. Um, and uh, excited for this, this new stage of life. I, I was going to say, I mean, you've done quite a bit in such a short amount of time. I mean, you're a young guy at the end of the day, and here you are listing off all these things. What made you go, hey, you know what, I'm going to get into the political side of the game? Uh, well, I guess I've been involved in politics for, for a while. I never thought that I'd, I'd be someone who put my name on a ballot. Um, that was a, a really recent decision that I made, and I guess I've, um, I I made it because of Jason, um, because of his vision and, and where he wanted to take the province. Um, my wife and I just talked it over and decided we want to be part of the team. Walk us through the last month and a half or a couple of months here where it's been, you know, nonstop, go, 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 door knocking, everything. How how challenging, how exciting, how uh, surprising has it been to go through what you went through here as as the uh, member elect now for Calgary Acadia? Yeah, I mean, it was a long road. We started it in well, last April 20th, so it was uh, almost a full year from, from the day I, I decided to run for the nomination to, to the election. Um, so it was um, almost a full year. There was a, a break in November and December from door knocking, but it was nonstop door knocking from, you know, you, you wake up in the morning and return emails and phone calls and then knocking at doors from about uh, you know noon, maybe as late as 2 o'clock, until uh, people told you... <laughs> to go away at about 8 o'clock in the evening. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it's nonstop door knocking. That was really it. What do you see as being sort of your first priority going into uh, the first your first session? Yeah, well, we have, I think, 375 promises that we need to uh, follow up on. And uh, that, um, I mean, the first, I mean, Jason said all throughout the campaign, uh, first priority is, is bill number one, uh, repealing the carbon tax. Um, uh, the business, Open for Business Act, the red tape reduction, um, a lot of those things, just making sure that those number one priorities um, are uh, executed on. Going back to all the things that you've done in your life, what has been the most proud you've been or the, the, the most, uh, that moment where you went, man, this is, this is the coolest thing I could have ever done? Throughout my life? Yeah. Yeah, being a dad. <laughs> Anybody who's, uh, who's a parent, I mean, the, the first time you see your first uh, child, I mean, that that's the, the most proud. Um, absolutely. But nothing compares to that. How about your professional? What stands out for you as maybe some of those those great moments in your professional life? Uh, well, I mean, being on the, the, the pool board, um, and, and I think because I uh, was able to do that at a pretty young age, I, I'm the, the youngest person who's ever served on the pool board. Um, so that was, um, I guess, quite an accomplishment and um, fantastic being able to serve my community in that way. Um, um, yeah, I mean, as a lawyer as well, there are some decisions you get that always surprise you and uh, um, be pretty proud of those moments as well. But uh, I, I mean, professionally, being on the, the National Parole Board, municipal government board as well, um, those are probably some of the most proud moments I've had professionally. On a personal level, going forward and looking ahead, if you had to take out your crystal ball, what is going to define success for you? Because at some point, you're going to want to, uh, I assume, try to do some things in, in your own personal realm to help uh, help your community. What kinds of things do you hope you can accomplish on a personal level uh, as an MLA? 
I mean, it's always being able to be responsive to your constituents and being able to answer the emails, meet with them, have them over your office, meet them for coffee in the constituency, um, return the phone calls, and, and just being a responsive MLA. There's just so much, so many questions that you get every day, um, so many problems that you get, and, and trying to, to help problem solve and be an advocate for your constituents. And um, that that's always going to be the most challenging. And, if, you know, if you're not successful doing that, then uh, <laughs> voters make a quick decision to <laughs> not have you reelected in four years. Have you learned anything about yourself over the last uh, number of months as you've been uh, getting yourself ready for the campaign and, and this win? Yeah, I, I, I guess I was surprised that um, I, I'd be able to knock on that many doors. And, um, uh, you know, I think um, I, I did this. I never thought that I'd be a candidate. I have to admit, I've been involved in politics, I guess, since the 90s. But I always thought that I'd be a, a campaigner and not necessarily somebody um, who, uh, who'd have this name on the ballot, but, um, yeah, it, it was a fantastic experience and really glad that I uh, went through it. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Tyler, and giving us a little bit of an insight into who you are and, uh, best of luck in, in your term here in office. Well, thanks so much. And thanks for having me. Calgary Acadia MLA elect Tyler Shandro to be sworn in officially tomorrow. I, again, I, as a political nerd, I do admit that I'm going to be interested to see how the makeup of Jason Kenney's first cabinet looks in terms of what kinds of uh, levels of importance are placed on different cabinet ministers. I mean, we talk about it on a federal stage. We always talk about it at a provincial stage is depending on who the all-stars are within cabinet. Those are kind of those people who end up sitting in in caucus. Those are the people who typically sit in cabinet. And there's a lot of new faces who this will be their first time as an MLA. And just like the NDP four years ago, there's going to be a few newbies who are going to be put uh, put right into the fire. It'll be interesting to see who ends up getting the call tomorrow. So we'll find that out and uh, stay tuned to uh, throughout the course of the show tomorrow, as I'm, uh, throughout the course of the day tomorrow, as I'm sure uh, all the hosts are going to be focusing in on that. Just for the record here, Tyler Shandro uh, beating Kate Andrews of the NDP by 4,600 votes in Calgary, Acadia in the 90 polls back Uh, It's hard to believe already a couple of weeks ago since the provincial election. Thanks so much for listening to the Calgary Today podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, and tune in. When you do, don't forget to write the show and leave a comment. Until next time, my friends.